Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa podcast. friends, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. Thanks for tuning in for another week. I'm hoping by the time you're listening to this, I'm getting a little bit better with my weekly upload schedule, but I do appreciate patience as this is a one moment operation. So if my schedule is a little sporadic, I'm doing my best. I promise. (laughs) Before we get started, uh, just a friendly reminder to please follow the podcast on Instagram um, and feel free to look us up on Patreon. I try to keep the Patreon really updated with upcoming guests. And also there's always discounts on our merchandise, um, which helps keep the podcast up and running. So I appreciate that so much. This week, I'm super excited to talk to another dear friend that I hope I can meet in person eventually, um, but I love speaking with her online. And we're going to talk about everything from ball python to carpet pythons and all that shit in between. So please welcome Corey Martin of Corey Martin Reptiles. Hello, Corey. Hey, Dominique. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm so excited to be on. I've been awesome. I'm so excited to, to have you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know we've like bounced around time. So it's glad we could get it's that to work. Busy people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll <laughs> just plug it right now that if you like listening to Corey, which I'm sure you will, um, go ahead and take a look at the last couple reptile gumbo podcasts because Corey has been guest hosting and she's done a great job with those. Oh, thank you. That was really, that was really fun. Uh, my, my, my time is finally over on that one, but it was, yeah, it was super fun. We got to talk to some fun people. We had Nick Mutton on. Yeah. And so that was a blast. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was super fun. I listened to the episode with Nick, um, most of the episode with Nick, who else did you interview while you were on that one? Oh gosh, hot, hot seat. So, um, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name. He's a boa guy, um, out of Colorado. Um, he does a lot with a lot of different, like, um, sand boas Mm -hmm. and, um, a number of different boa species. And I don't remember his name and I'm a terrible, terrible person because of that. (laughs) Um, not terrible. And then um, we had uh, my friend, uh, Rachel, she's the, the spouse of one of the hosts of Reptile Gumbo on the most recent episode. And awesome. she, she has a new uh, reptile business that she's launching now. And so I'm very excited for her. Yeah, that's great. So I want to go give that a listen. Um, Corey's great. I always love it when you get to, when we get to hear you talk because hey, I think you bring you. a great perspective. Oh, thanks. So for people who don't know you, Corey, can you give me like your elevator pitch? Like who is Corey Martin and what do you work with? <laughs> yeah. So I, the, the majority of my collection is ball pythons. I started as a ball python breeder and I have, um, that's the, the kind of the meat and potatoes of my collection, but I'm also very, very into carpet pythons. I have a pretty uh, significant and diverse collection of carpet pythons. Um, I have a smaller group of hog noses that are just starting to breed for me, uh, which Mm -hmm. has been really fun. And then I recently got into um, black headed pythons. So so that's, oh no. And then I also have, then I also, so then I've got a couple of other oddball species. So this isn't super oddball, but I have a few uh, green tree pythons. I've 
I've picked up a few. I'm of doing those. jazz hands. I know people can't hear I that. Know, but I'm like so excited for you. <laughs> I know. I was like, I don't know. I was so intimidated to do it. And then mm-hmm. once I did, it was like, it's not as hard as people make it out to be. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, they're super fun. I, I have two of them right now and I have a third coming um, in a the next month or so that's so, so exciting yeah. I love when I hear people talk about how they're like worried green trees are hard because like if anyone's listened to this podcast like they know that my first snake was a green tree and I just am so grateful for that because I was so fucking naive yeah. that I was like oh it'll be fine and it was fine because I didn't psych myself into thinking that it would be so difficult right right so um, what specific localities are you working with or do you have designer or? Yeah. So I have, so my first one was a designer. It's a, uh, the parents were a sickness sibling mm-hmm. and, um, and I think just a, a cyclops, um, by mm-hmm. Jason Brumley. I was and thinking then, that was Brumley. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh, one of the rotten banana ones that it's kind of, kind of cool. And then my second one is just a Cyclops uh, import. And my third one is I got a red Neo from Brumley from the same clutch. So awesome. I, I, I love Jason's animals. I really I do. <laughs> I know. I know. So. I'm, I'm like so excited for being able to, I, I've, I've kind of like, not for any particular reason, I've besides like financially, I've like closed my collection and it's really yeah. hard because I see all these animals I want, but I'm like at this point where the animals I have are enough. And if I plan on yeah. breeding, I need to be prepared to do that. So it's like, That's okay, so you smart. have, it's hard. It's very difficult. It is really <laughs> hard. I'm trying. So I'm trying really, really hard to chill on bringing new animals in. Mm-hmm. and um it's it's hard yeah yeah it's yeah. it's one of those things where it's like do I spend the money on this new animal that I really want or do I upgrade these two other animals that need it yeah you know and so I know I'm going and down so, the upgrade path and yeah <laughs> yep and then for me with my carpets it's just this constant thing of I'm constantly needing to figure out new bigger enclosures for everyone mm-hmm. as they grow yeah. And so that's like, I feel like that's just going to be a never ending thing with, them. I mean, it's, it'll yeah. end eventually, but like, well, yeah, I, yeah. With growing out so many, it's, I constantly need to be thinking about upgrading and moving things around. I feel like I, especially with the carpets, it's like, I look at my cages and I'm like, oh, let's upgrade them. And then two weeks later, I'm like, they could go bigger. They could cause they <laughs> use it. <laughs> right. You know, it's right. not like the green trees or the ball pythons where it's like, oh, that's their corner or that's their spot. It's like, no, they're using it constantly, especially my brettles. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. Are they they all over their cages? All over. So usually, I mean, it's, it's like seven o'clock now, so we'll probably finish before my lights go out, (laughs) but usually in the cage behind me, this top cage here is my male. And he just like smacks himself against the front of the enclosure all night. And he just surfs his glass. And I'm like, dude, like he's only a couple of years old and he's in like a three foot by two foot by two foot cage. Wow. And I'm like, dude, like, do you need to go bigger? And I want to go bigger, but <laughs> it's like, he just yeah. got that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's then, um, So I've, yeah, I was going to say, I've got like 48 carpet pythons. And so yeah, like there's a space issue there too, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, you want to give them a lot of space in their cages, but there's also like, 
I only have so many like walls that I can put cages on in my house. Right. And so right. So what to, is your figure that out? What is your setup like? Are you using mostly rack systems and, and what's your so, sizing? Yeah. So um, a mix of pretty much everything. So I use mostly, I, I, all of my ball pythons are in racks. I don't do caging with them at all. And then for the carpets, we start in racks and I think, oh gosh, I have one, two, three, four, five, six different sizes of rack spaces that I'll move them through as they grow. Mm-hmm. And then I also have um, three foot and four foot PVC cages. Yeah. And then I have one, I have a couple of really big, uh, like six foot by two foot by two foot cages mm-hmm. that I got when I had picked up a couple of Apodora mm-hmm. and it, it was, they were for that. And then I had a horrible situation with them and they got sick and had to put them down. And so now I've got these giant empty cages. And so I'm thinking that we'll probably put uh, granite, uh, bread lie in there. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Cause I mean, that's the thing with the red lie is like, they, I feel like they use it, you know, yeah. more than other species. Yeah. And it'll be fun and it has some height to it. And so they'll, mm-hmm. they'll be able to, you know, mm-hmm. perch and do all that fun stuff. So do you do what I do where you just like hoard cages that aren't being used? Yes. Yeah. I don't yeah. ever get rid of anything. It's like hilarious. I moved into a new apartment a couple weeks ago, or excuse me, a couple months ago now, I guess. Jeez, I should really get more impact. Um, <laughs> but it's got this huge walk-in closet Ooh. and I toured it and like my friends were like, oh my God, you're close. And I was like, my cages. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's like an entirely different vision. It's, it's stuffed to the brim with reptile cages. And then it's got this one outlet in it. And I was like, I can put an incubator in here. And oh. my friend's like- okay and I'm like no trust me this is this is impressive (laughs) oh yeah that's great I know I love it I was like definitely sold on the closet yeah that's Mm -hmm. wonderful Mm -hmm. yeah we have we have reptiles I think in four different rooms in my house right now geez yeah it's lucky (laughs) it's it's something (laughs) you must have a supportive family I do um so I got into this because of my uh, with my son Mm -hmm. and he, so I've got four kids and my, my second, so my, both of my boys are on the autism spectrum Mm -hmm. and uh, my, my second son was having a lot of, a lot of challenges with anxiety at school and just a whole bunch of stuff. And we were trying to figure out ways to motivate him. And he had been wanting a snake forever. And I've been like, no, snakes are horrible. We're never, ever getting snakes. (laughs) And, um, and so he, he, we figured that, well, this is going to be something that'll motivate him. So we decided like, you know, if he was consistently, you know, going to school without complaining, then we would get him a snake. And Mm -hmm. we finally went and got him his first uh, snake and it was a ball python. It was, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And the next day I went out and bought one of my own. And I think by the end of the next week, I had three more ordered and it it just spiraled from there. So yeah. What was your introduction into like ball pythons? Were you going the pet store route? Did you have any idea about breeders or anything? Yeah. So we, I, I had watched a bunch of like YouTube videos about them because Mm -hmm. my son had found all these YouTube videos. And so Mm -hmm. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos And then we went to a local reptile pet store and looked at them. And then um, I think we found a 
a reptile expo and that's where we got our first one was that awesome yeah. and did he have an idea of morph or was he just looking no, for a python no or? we were we were completely overwhelmed i can uh, imagine like, like completely i had no idea like i think he he picked out a little uh pastave and um yeah, she she had our first clutch for us this last year, uh, and I'm never going to be allowed to get rid of her, even though she doesn't really fit into my breeding plans because she's my son's snake, even though he does no care for her at all. And that's kind of how it works, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how we how how we got into that. We had we had had a bearded dragon before that. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, like a lot of dumb parents thought that a bearded dragon would be like an easy way to get into reptiles. I, I, <laughs> I, I cannot stand bearded dragons. I know that's like a horrible no, thing to say. It was, it was a terrible, like it, it was, we kept the thing alive for like a good long time, but man, by the end it had gout and it just, it's, like, they're so difficult. It was awful. They are so difficult. And like, it sucks. Like I think bearded dragons are the one. So I've, you know, I I've fostered a decent amount of animals through the rescue I work mm -hmm. with and bearded dragons are the hardest animal I've ever worked with. I have syringe fed a leopard gecko every single day, including on Christmas morning, because wow. it was so like malnourished. And I, that was still easier than the, than the bearded dragon I had. Wow. Like, it's just, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just like me being so used to how easy snakes are or how easy right. geckos are right. like the level of care that a bearded dragon requires is so much more advanced than most quote unquote beginner species no it absolutely is and it's not and it's not sold that way generally mm -mm. no people think they're buying an easy like beginner pet mm -hmm. and it's just not no yeah and it's I work with the rescue I work with. We see so many come in, yeah. so many bearded oh. dragons come in, you know? And, yeah. and I think a lot of people don't recognize that bearded dragons are super prone to parasites. They're super prone to disease. Yeah. Like they can get fucked really quick. Yeah. No kidding. Mm -hmm. No kidding. And then let alone the, like all the slugs females will lay and hmm. yeah. Yep. Wow. So positive way to go, Dominique. Um, <laughs> just, that's like my soapbox is I'm really anti-bearded dragon, which is just a hot yeah. take for me, but yeah, I would never get another one. Sorry. Let's take a step back. Um, I want to get into like your reptile keeping evolution and such, but I, I'd like yeah. to talk about like you when you're younger was okay. like, I know that you said that the snakes were something that originally was your son's idea yeah. and you kind of, you know, were like, fine, I'll give him. Yeah. When you were growing up, did you ever have a fascination with animals or was it really? Yeah. So I've, in adulthood? I've always been an animal person, okay. but I've always been, you know, up until recently, it's been like, I've been a mammal animal person. And mm -hmm. so I've always had dogs and cats and that kind of thing. I wanted to be a vet when I grew up for most of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And then I got allergic to dogs and cats. And I was like, well, I guess that's probably not going to be the best route for me after all. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, probably not. Yeah. And I mean, I still have I currently still have like three dogs and three cats. So, you know, I don't know that that really, um, mm -hmm. yeah, that really ended up mattering too much. But um, yeah, I was always like, always, always an animal person. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, 
I, I remember like one time I like went on this church work trip when I was in high school and we found salamanders in someone's flooded basement that we were work cleaning out. Mm-hmm. And like that became my mission was like rescuing these salamanders. And yeah. I like spent my entire day, like taking them to better habitats and all that kind of stuff. It was just mm-hmm. like, yeah, I've just, it's always been my thing. Were your, I, yeah. were your parents into animals? Like, did they allow you to have pets or was it just like more your fascination? Yeah. So my, um, they are. And so my mom, my mom let us have pets. Um, Mm -hmm. we always, yeah, we had never like, you know, crazy numbers. Like I let my children have, but (laughs) you know, like normal, respectable number, like we'd have a dog and maybe a cat or two. Mm -hmm. Um, My brother had a pet, a hedgehog, which was like very exotic at the time for us. He got like written up in our local, um, like, our local town magazine um, because of how it. small was your town <laughs> it was like a little suburb that had one high school and it was mm-hmm. you know very like norman rockwell 1950s kind of town so um oh my god yeah. that's too funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> i just like can't imagine like oh well what's the news today chuck i don't know but that kid's got a hedgehog he's got a hedgehog <laughs> like, throw <laughs> it in exactly <laughs> oh that's too funny yeah yeah but always always been an animal person when I was in college uh, we had a feral cat colony on our college campus Mm -hmm. and um, over the course of my senior year I tamed one of the cats down and abducted her when I graduated good and yeah and she was my she was my like first adult pet Mm -hmm. um, and had her like forever and so yeah always been a pet person my husband's like not did not grow up with pets Mm-hmm. And so his thing's always been like, I know I can't stop you. My goal is just to like slow you down. <laughs> I think that's like reasonable. <laughs> I mean, but like, honestly, at the point you're at, does he even notice when there's new pets? So it's funny. Like, I think he doesn't, he, he, he'll be like, oh, okay, cool. A new snake. Um, but yeah, if I were to bring another cat home, I think he'd divorce me on the spot. Like we're so over cats <laughs> at this point. I get that. Okay. Yeah. That makes more <laughs> but sense. If it's I, like, easier if, one to like notice. If I had a box of like 20 snakes arrive tomorrow, he'd be like, oh, okay, cool. As long as I didn't spend stupid amounts of money, but mm-hmm. yeah. So when was it that you got this first bearded dragon and then the snake? Yeah. So we, our bearded dragon, gosh, was probably like eight years ago. Okay. Um, and then our first snake was only at the beginning of 20 of 2019 wow so you went like balls to the wall I went crazy in big time Mm yeah do you do you have any regrets about doing it that way or like lessons Um, that you learned I I I learned I'm trying to think I don't I I don't have huge regrets about it Mm um I certainly like there are some of my early purchases that wouldn't be purchases that I would make now. Probably wouldn't have gone so heavily into ball pythons uh, if I had experience with other species first. Mm-hmm. I probably would have, um, yeah, I just, I probably would have looked and, and spent some more focus on really getting into some other species early on. Is, Is that it, because your fascination has changed within species or you didn't like caring no, for ball pythons? No, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I still have a big collection. It's the core of what I do. Like I, I, I don't hate on ball pythons at all. Um, 
but yeah, when I got into carpet pythons, it was, mm -hmm. that was the one that was really like, oh, wow, these are the ones like, they're the ones that really, really speak to me a lot. Right. And so, um, and so, yeah, I probably would have just gone, gone more into that had I, but I went into that pretty heavily too. So I don't know that that's a regret or a decision that I would change. So when you but, got your first ball pythons, were you uh, planning to breed right off the bat or were you just fascinated with snakes in general and wanted to have pets so it turned in it, into breeding pretty quick mm -hmm. um and so like i want to say for for the first six months or so the animals all you know still had names and they were like <laughs> you know that kind of stuff we gave up on names a long long time ago mm -hmm. um but yeah, they, it, 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 the, the, the focus became breeding pretty quickly. Um, it just, it seemed really, really interesting to me. I've just been really fascinated by the genetics piece of it with, with ball pythons in particular and the, mm -hmm. you know, all of the heritability stuff is really fascinating. So that's mm -hmm. what really got me into it on the breeding side. So when you got your first ball pythons, what morphs were you going for did you have any ideas of genetics oh. or did you just like what it looked like oh it was totally what it looked like like yeah. it was not like there wasn't a huge master plan for a while mm -hmm. it was like my I think my first recessive I got was a het clown and I got no I got a pied first is my first visual recessive um mm -hmm. but it was just kind of a lot of oh that's a cool snake I'm gonna get that and oh that's mm -hmm. pretty I'm gonna get that and then it was really a little bit later on where I started sitting down and being like, oh, I should probably like figure out like how these things go together and what I'm actually doing here. Right. A bit of a plan. Cause it's, it's very easy to just go like yeah. balls to the wall and just be excited about it. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, Most of what I got early on, like I there, it, it does work with what I'm doing, but it's, it's that, that piece of like learning to really get selective about what I get and really think it through has, has taken a little time to develop. Mm -hmm. So when you were getting these first animals, were you already knowledgeable about rack systems in like their general husbandry or is that something that developed more? Yeah, no, I, I, that was, um, I did. So I'm one of the weird things about me is I go really deep into research really, really quickly. And I mean, so, you're a lawyer. Yeah. You, you it's probably kind of, should. <laughs> it's what I, it's what I do. I like to research things. And so, you know, in that period of time where we committed to my son that if we, if he could keep it together, you know, for this long, we'd get a ball Python. Like I spent all of my time, like all of my free time researching, like learning everything I could about these animals. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had, I had a pretty good grasp on what I needed to do um, going in. Once I actually got them, um, you know, I, I certainly made some tweaks. Mm -hmm. um, we, but we started in glass cages um, and then we went to standalone tubs for a while. Yeah. And then I got rack systems pretty quick. And once I got those, it was, everything was, was easier. Yeah. It's pretty life-changing when you get rack systems. Yeah. 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 I'm getting a new rack system for my green trees and I'm so excited. Ooh. I'm just, I'm getting it used. Good. What, what, are, what I'm are you getting? getting? Um, it's two 64 quart tubs. Um, it's just like a Ooh. sea serpent's rack. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It was actually owned by, um, by Justin Wilbanks who was uh, 
geez, Appalachian Arboreals, I believe. Um, and he unfortunately Uh passed away last year. Um, but I'm friends with his girlfriend through the women's group. Oh, wow. Um, and she was, you know, getting rid of some of his enclosures and such. And so I'm, I'm purchasing it from her and I'm really excited to have it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it is special. And, you know, I looked up to Justin a lot. He was one of the first people I spoke to when I was getting into green tree. So it'll be nice to have something from him and then also support Danielle. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. I'm very excited, but it's going to make a big difference because I'm already looking at my caging, like my mm-hmm. actual like system. And I'm like, okay, well I'll have two cages for you. And I'm like, what can I put in two more cages? <laughs> Which maybe That's isn't how... the best mentality. I know but... it's, mm-hmm. it's, I've operated that way for a while. So I get it. I'm actually pretty good with empty space right now. And I'm really happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, I was going to ask. So when you get, when you move to rack systems, it's like really easy to get a bigger rack system and then like, just want to fill it quickly. Yep. Is that something you did? And did you slash are you working on a quarantine procedure to ensure that you're not going too quick now? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I, yeah, early on, I would get a rack at a time. So I started with a five slot rack Mm -hmm. and then I bought another five slot rack. And so I've generally not gone too crazy in the big once I started going to like the ARS type racks Mm -hmm. then I had a lot more space to grow into right um now with incoming animals I do I absolutely have a quarantine set up Mm -hmm. um I've had a couple of times now where I've picked up um where I've had wild caught animals come in and so because of yeah so because of that I'm uh, really, really careful about my quarantine procedures. And when and, you talk yeah. about wild caught, are you, is that carpet pythons? Is that ball pythons? Both? So not, not ball pythons. So okay. um, I've had, I've had wild caught carpet pythons come in. Those were my first wild caughts. How um, did you I get had, wild caught carpet pythons? IJs. So there were. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wait a You're second. Like, wait. <laughs> it's like, are you just no, no, admitting no. to something very no, illegal? I'm not, I'm not admitting to something <laughs> illegal. No, they were from, they were legally acquired from Indonesia where such okay. things are legal. Okay. And sorry. So- I just got very nervous. I was like, oh, okay, thank you so much for the interview, Corey. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. No. I, so, so yeah. So I got a group of, of three wild caught West Papuan slash IJs. And so mm-hmm. those were my first ones uh, to deal with. And they came with parasites. They came with subdermal parasites. It was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's so, gross. yeah. Um, so we had them separated for about a year mm-hmm. uh, prior to doing any kind of, prior to integrating them in with the collection. And then, um, and then I've, I've, I've had wild cots a couple other times and I keep, I'm, exceptionally rigorous about that particular quarantine protocol. Like I mm-hmm. only touch them at the end of the day and, um, you know, it, and it won't go handle any other snakes afterwards, mm-hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing and have them in a completely, completely separate remote part of the house. Yeah. Um, in terms of just regular quarantine. So I then shows mm-hmm. and, um, I have other animals come in. And so I have a room that's my like, room that I use for animals coming in or out mm-hmm. and, or not really out, but animals coming in or animals that have been at shows coming back in. Right. Um, and so I use that as my quarantine, everything coming into that room gets, um, 
gets doused with like the reptile relief spray and um you know I, we watch them on paper and um they stay quarantined uh i'm not like i'm not probably as rigorous as i should be just because of the frequency of doing shows mm-hmm. um and but i try to keep animals in there for um a month since the last animal came in okay gotcha so if a new animal comes in on day 28 for the restroom you then restart. we start over yeah okay awesome yeah. so during a time are you testing regularly for anything or is it more just monitoring for anything abnormal so if it's if it's an animal that's coming in from a captive collection i'm generally not testing them Mm-hmm. Um, if it's, unless I'm trying to think, no, I haven't, I haven't had an issue yet where an animal's come in and been obviously ill, except for my Apodora situation, which, um, was awful, but they, they did come in with an illness and, um, we did test quickly and, um, they had to be put down, mm-hmm. um, because of it. And it was awful because they were my dream snakes and I love yeah. them, but, um, that's why you rigorously quarantine yeah, and absolutely. nothing, nothing, nothing spread to the rest of my collection. It was all, it was all good. So, um, it just reinforced the importance of, of good quarantine, but for, for captive animals coming in from someone else's collection, I'm generally not testing them. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because at the kind of numbers I have, it would be pretty prohibitive on a Mm -hmm. cost perspective. Um, I am testing, I am testing my green trees just because I know that, um, like Nido is just a thing. Yeah. So, um, and I know it's a thing in other species than green trees, but it's just um, very prevalent in green trees. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm, so, so those ones are, are ones that, um, that I'm doing that with, but, um, Mm -hmm. but otherwise now I'm not testing them. When you are vending these shows, are you generally vending your own, um, animals that you produce? And then, yeah, I don't, I don't pick up any animals from other people. The only time I'll sell something is if it's an animal I bought for my collection that I've decided that I don't want to keep in my collection anymore. Gotcha. Yeah. So how, you know, how, oh my God, these fucking <laughs> Okay. So Corey, I'm just going to like do full disclosure. If anyone hears yeah, a random clapping is that Corey and I were discussing earlier about the thing that all herb keepers lie about mm-hmm. is not talking about fruit flies. And I opened it's a horrible. beer during this episode and they're all fucking swarming. Yeah. Pissing so I've got off. these, I've got these fruit flavored, like sparkling water things mm-hmm. and they love these too. Cause it like mm-hmm. smells like fruit and they just go crazy with them. Yeah. It pisses me off. I've got like the catchies. Yeah. I've got all this shit yep. and still, I mean, honestly, if this is the worst thing I have to deal with, that's fine, but it yep. is so distracting. And it's, me. it's the time of year for them. Yeah. So. And I live in a super old house. Like the apartment I live in is 160 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like very old. So it's like all of this stuff, things just find their way in. There's this <laughs> weird, there's this very strange, okay. Sorry to bug lovers. I do like bugs. I don't like unexpected bugs. And there's been this weird millipede thing that has crawled up my drain like three times. Ooh. And I'm so afraid of it. Cause it always, I always find it in the morning. Like when I'm <gasps> like brushing my teeth and I've like flushed it down the drain and it keeps reappearing. And so it's just an oh, old apartment. Weird. Yeah. It's like weird. It just freaks me out. Okay. That's such a tangent. Jeez. But, uh, <laughs> <ugh>. <laughs> yeah. Um, but okay. So when 
how often are animals going to shows and then returning back to your collection and going out to shows and such? And how do you, as, um, uh, as a seller at shows, yep. minimize stress on your animals? Yeah. So, so awesome, really good questions. So I, I typically don't vend more than once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes just depending on show schedules, it ends up being a little more, a little more often than that. Sometimes I have longer periods of time. And so mm-hmm. it's just, it just kind of depends right now. I'm on a, I think a period of about two months between shows and it's glorious. Mm-hmm. Um, but to minimize stress on them. So I have the, uh, the next level displays that have heat tape built into them oh, and, awesome. and they, um, so basically, and they have a thermostat built in as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able to keep them on heat until, you know, right when we pack up and go, mm-hmm. then, um, as soon as I get them set up, they, the heat gets turned back on again. They, um, are underneath, you know, if, if the show's not happening, they're underneath covers to mm-hmm. help, you know, have some darkness. Um, and I generally just, I don't, I try not to let people fondle the animals like, mm-hmm. you know, and so if, if it's someone who's really, you know, who's a serious customer looking at an animal, that's one thing, but um, you know, it shows you often get kids coming up wanting to touch the animals. And I just, um, I try not to do that because yeah. it's, just, it's a lot. It's very easy to want to touch things. It's funny because it I look back on when I first went to shows and it's like, you just want to yeah. touch everything. And then like, I barely even touch my own animals now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So something that we talked about before we started recording, and I'd love to talk mm-hmm. to you about now, um, when you're vending shows and you have a kid or a family come up and say, Hey, it's my first snake. Yeah. What are you directing them towards? So I'm generally directing them toward what interests them to, Mm -hmm. to start with, because that, I mean, that's the big thing for me is if you're just getting into this, Mm -hmm. don't get something because it's easy, like get something because it's the animal you want. Mm -hmm. And if you're dedicated enough to figuring, you know, to figuring it out, then, you know, that works out that said, like, you know, I know you got a green tree for your first one. I probably wouldn't recommend that, you know, someone who's just getting into snakes, go pick up that like import green tree over there, but that other, I mean, you know, it yeah, thing. yeah. It's not like I would totally recommend that. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It is. But like, generally, if it's someone who's, who's newer, we're talking about, we're generally talking about lower price point animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm generally, you know, directing them toward one that, you know, I know is a really outstanding eater already. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, you know, I'll probably, I'll probably direct them toward one that's maybe more like six months old instead of like two months old, just because mm-hmm. it's just an animal that's been around longer and more established and it's, and it's feeding and all of that. I don't know. So one of the things we were talking about is the idea of carpet pythons as beginner animals. Yes. Cause that was yeah. the next thing I was going to bring up is yeah. assuming someone says that nothing is, I'm not drawn to every, anything yeah. with what you keep. What yeah. do you deem to be a beginner or a good starter species? Yeah. So I know, I mean, I know a lot of people don't agree with the idea of ball pythons as easy starter species. 
um, just because of the whole thing where they can go off of food and it can be a freaky, scary experience. Um, mm -hmm. And that they're a little bit higher, you know, a little bit more prone to stress than some other animals. Mm -hmm. um, I typically think they're a pretty decent first snake because they are substantial enough that you can hold. They don't move really fast. Mm -hmm. They um, don't have really significant needs for care. Like it's, it tends, I mean, it's easy to mess up if you're handling them all the time or that kind of thing. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, as long as you kind of have your parameters dialed in for, hus for husbandry, it's not not crazy hard and um they're just they're relatively easy I like the idea of carpets as beginner snakes the only problem is as babies they're so bitey mm -hmm. and it freaks people out yeah and absolutely. so like it shows it's a hard sell because mm -hmm. a baby carpet so particularly if we're talking like jungles or, you know, something like that, they're mm -hmm. not as pretty as they're going to be in a couple mm -hmm. of years. And they're tiny and they're more fragile. So mm -hmm. you've got to be careful with handling them. And if you get them out to show them to someone, I'm going to get bit and the other person is going to get bit. And I don't <laughs> want the, and I don't want that person to fling my snake across the hall when they get bit. Right. Um, and so that's the thing that I think makes it like harder as a sell for a new one, but mm -hmm. in terms of like actually taking care of them and experiencing them as pets, I think they're amazing mm -hmm. because they're so hardy. Right. Um, you know, we went through the freeze in Texas mm -hmm. and I didn't even worry about my carpet pythons. Like, right. I, like they'll be fine, but um, other stuff I, I, I worried about a lot more. I think they could be a really good pet, but they're just, they're a little bit harder to sell. So when you talk about why you think they're easier um, and are a good pet, like besides the bitiness, what do you think yeah. the push is for ball pythons versus these other great species? So I think the fact that there are so many of them, mm -hmm. um, I think the fact that they're, um, I mean, I know for me, when I was first getting into snakes, what attracted me to ball pythons instead of like, say corn snakes mm -hmm. was smaller colubrids can be a little bit more flightier in their movements. Mm -hmm. And that freaked me out a little bit as a newer keeper, I like, right. get, like ball pythons, like you, they don't really surprise you with where they're going. Right. And, um, as someone who wasn't used to handling snakes and, you know, was still afraid of the idea of getting bitten, like that seemed like a cool way to go. Mm -hmm. And there was information, whether it be good information or not, there was information everywhere because yeah. they were so popular. But that said, like, you know, I think, I think in particular, um, a couple of subspecies of carpet pythons should be much, much, much more prevalent and thought about as pets. Mm -hmm. And so uh, bread lie and, and inlands. Yeah. Um, they're like, my inlands are basically puppies. They're <laughs> um, like, they're so, so, so calm and tame and curious and just want to mm -hmm. hang out with you. And they're interested in you and want to explore their space. And, um, 
I've never had one get even the slightest bit defensive about anything. It's pretty remarkable. So when with someone who does work with quote unquote beginner species like yourself, Mm -hmm. um, what is your argument to people who are worried about the size of a carpet python? I, it's, it's funny. I, cause that was one of the things that it, I was worried about at first too. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've done before is I'll bring a breeder male adult carpet Python with me mm-hmm. to a show mm-hmm. to show like these things don't have to be huge. Like right. a, a full grown adult male jungle carpet Python is going to be smaller weight wise than a ball Python. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're long, but they're skinny long. They're so tiny. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. they're just, and as long as they're not, you know, fed, like you would feed a ball python, um, they aren't necessarily going to grow huge. And so it's, you know, a a female could get bigger, but if, you know, there, there are certain subspecies to look at, if you really don't want a big one, like get Mm -hmm. an IJ there's, you know, there's. IJs, jungles as well, usually aren't quite as big and, you know, don't overfeed them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, I don't remember who said it, but it was, um, oh gosh, something along the lines of like, it may have been Nick Button on the, the gumbo. It's like, uh-huh. yes, a bread line can get eight feet, but a human can get seven feet tall. Right. It's like, it's not it going to happen. Will. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. a possible, it's an outlier. It's an outlier. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So going back a little bit, you mentioned that if you started over, you wouldn't necessarily get back into ball pythons. I think I wouldn't have gone as deep into ball pythons. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Sorry. For yeah. The, uh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. So then I have two questions for you Yeah. as someone coming from someone else who keeps ball pythons. So this mm-hmm. isn't like, I, so this is, I'm like prefacing that this is going to be like a rude question that I would like your feedback on. <laughs> okay. Cause that sounds bad. Um, So I actually brought this conversation up to my friend group after listening to the episode of um, Reptile Gumbo with Nick Mutton. So for people who don't know, Nick Mutton is a phenomenal uh, bread lie breeder and just carpet pythons in Mm -hmm. general. Um, And James and him were kind of like going back and forth, dissing people who get disappointed by producing normal animals Mm -hmm. and being disappointed by that. So I counter argued (laughs) to the reptile gumbo chat, whoever runs that, I believe it was James, that as someone whose background is in rescue, where most of the ball pythons I see come in are normals that were just Mm -hmm. sold offhand or gifted away, that it is an ethical decision that some breeders have to make to cull normal animals to not continue to oversaturate Mm -hmm. the market. And I've had that conversation with a couple people and I don't want to sound heartless when I say it, Mm -hmm. but in my head, if I produce normal animals, I would rather humanely euthanize to then provide them as feeders to other people who will use them because Mm -hmm. I have more control over their future and that they're having some sort of quote unquote purpose. And I've had mixed responses when I asked that question and I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I don't call my normals. I mm-hmm. have had very good luck selling them as pets to people and mm-hmm. to people who are enthusiastic to get them as pets. Mm-hmm. I think that having a lower price point entry into the hobby mm-hmm. is 
a good thing. I understand that there's the counter argument there of, you know, if you have to invest more in the animal, you do you want to say that like, I, when I, I bring up this question, it's totally not money motivated. I'm thinking from my perspective of rescue, what I see come in. It's like, you don't see the $300 animals come in, but you do see like all the normals, you know? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Sure. I don't think, you know, at the same time, you know, I keep animals that, you know, I keep blockheaded pythons. And if you were inclined to, they're snake eaters in the wild and, Mm -hmm. you know, you could feed to that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with treating them as a feeder animal and, you know, getting rid of them, but I don't necessarily think they deserve quite the degree of hate that they get. Mm -hmm. Um, I, but again, I don't work rescues. And so I don't see that side. I don't see that side of it. Yeah. Cool. That was just, I know that's like a heartless question yeah. to ask, no, but I it's just, not, it's not, it's, um, you know, one of the, one of the realities of breeding animals is like mm-hmm. some animals that you produce are not going to be fit for one reason or another. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's an issue that you have to, you know, be willing to deal with and look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and then but, a yeah. follow up to that with your particular situation is yeah, with you, selling animals and like mm-hmm. going to shows and stuff. Do you have any like vetting process or questions you ask to ensure that the animals you're producing are going to homes that know how to take care of them? It's not vetting as much as it is having conversations with people. And so I don't like someone coming up to my table and assuming that they're brand new and don't know what they're doing. Right. And so we try to talk through the situation. I figure out what their experience level is. And then as part of the sale, we talk through how you care for this animal and Mm -hmm. we talk about, you know, specific things related to the setup, um, what Mm -hmm. kind of substrate to get, you know, how are you, how are you going to keep it? And, you know, all of that kind of thing. I don't currently have a care guide that I hand out, but it's some, it's something I'm considering doing. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, I kind of go back and forth on it because care guides come up, like they're so prescriptive. Mm-hmm. And one of the things like you need to develop as a keeper is, you know, it's, it's good to have a prescriptive base, but you don't want to be married to the prescription because you want to be able to re- right. learn the skill of reading your animals and seeing mm-hmm. are they thriving or not and what do they need and how does, how do things compare? Right. Um, so it's mostly rather than like a list of vetting questions, it's mostly conversation and talking to them and sharing information as we proceed through the transaction. And yeah. do you, do most people you have sold to keep up with you, like give you updates on a your animals? A whole lot of people do. Yeah. Um, there, there are certainly ones who don't, but a, a whole lot of people do. And I love it very, very much. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I give my information for how to contact me to everyone who buys them. And I want to know. That's awesome. I would, I, I, I keep up to date with the breeders that I, uh, <laughs> Yeah. that I've bought animals from. And sometimes I'm like, I wonder if they're annoyed with me. <laughs> no, they love it. Cause it's, you know, you, people who are, who are breeding, they do it like for the same reason that hobbyists do, like we're all doing this because we love the animals. Right. 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 I mean, the good ones are at least like, and so seeing someone else is excited about your animal as you are, is just the coolest thing ever. So mm-hmm. Yeah. So when was, when did you first start breeding and like, talk about that process? Yeah. So I, um, 
that first year that I started acquiring animals, I picked up a few that were ready to be bred. And um, one of one pair that came in, um, the breeder who I got from, who's a really well-known breeder, was like, hey, so these guys look like they're probably about ready to go. So you might want to think about pairing them pretty quick once they come in. And you're like, um, excuse me? <laughs> and I did. And I didn't really see anything. I was like, yeah, whatever. Didn't think about it much. Um, and a couple months later, I dropped a clutch of eggs dropped. My God. I never saw a lock. I was so brand new. I didn't know that my girl was gravid. Mm-hmm. I thankfully had an incubator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, I, I got it all plugged in. She was a first timer. A couple of the eggs weren't good from the start. And another one died in the process of incubating. And then the last three ended up not coming out of the eggs alive. And that was, that was my first clutch. That's tough. (laughs) And it sucked so much. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was like certain that I was the world's worst breeder, that I had done something terribly, terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent, you know, the research thing again, like I spent, like, I can't even tell you how many hours, like looking at every single angle of like what could have happened. I got like different temperature monitoring things for my incubator. I switched the substrate method that I do for incubation, um, mm-hmm. you know, just all sorts of stuff you know, regrouped. And, um, I had my first like real clutch that made it hatch, um, of January last year. And, um, last, last season, I ended up with about 10 clutches, uh, nine carpets, wow. sorry, sorry, one carpet, nine ball pythons. Wow. And, um, this year I just had my 20th clutch land. Oh today. my God. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've got a yeah. zero to so 60. I yeah. did. I did. So yeah, it's so, and fun. As, it's of, so fun. as of recording this today, your hognose clutch just dropped. Yeah. Um, I noticed when you posted that you, it looks like you're using perlite or is it vermiculite? So I use hatchrite. So hatchrite. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ites. Um, yep. but I noticed that you, uh, had your slugs in the box as well. I just did that for pictures. I okay. I was wondering, I, I was like, in. is she? Okay. No, I didn't, so, I didn't incubate the slugs. Okay. So when you, um, but you had one that you think like might be a slug or might yeah. be infertile. So I have one, I, I have one that's probably going to end up being a slug that mm-hmm. one I went ahead and incubated. I put in the box and I'll just keep an eye on it. And then if it starts going bad, then I'll pull it out. It, it won't do anything to harm any of the other eggs. Right. Yeah. So with that one, why do you determine that that one's worth trying versus the other ones that were more obviously slugs? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the other ones were just like the classic yellow slugs. This Mm -hmm. one was a little bit bigger, had a little bit more shape and there was, um, a little fleck of some like blood, like maybe wanting to be veining, maybe not. And so because I saw that, I just wanted to give it a try and see. Awesome. Yeah. So then after your, you know, female has laid, mm-hmm. I, I assume it depends species to species, but what is your like yeah. rehabilitation like for the females? Yeah. So for the, so for the ball pythons, which I have more experience with, they get washed so that they mm-hmm. get their, the scent of the clutch off of them. 
-hmm. and they get moved to a completely different bin in a different area. And um, typically I'll start offering food the next week. And um, most of them will take every once in a while, a girl like is just gets set in like, I'm incubating my clutch right now mode and takes a little bit longer. Um, But, but generally, generally almost all of them start really quick. And I've never had one that's like long-term been, um, you know, really difficult to get back on. I want to knock on wood because as soon as I say, I've never had something like it'll happen, having it happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So part of my ignorance, but when you say you wash the snake, yeah. Just water, Dawn, what are you yep, washing water, with? Water with a little bit of Dawn. I'll just okay. yep, splash it down. Just try to get whatever like eggy, smelly scent off. And mm-hmm. yep. Move do, you notice, fresh place. do you notice that if a female has recently laid and you take care of that female, any of the animals around it seem to have an effect? I have not noticed that. Okay. Yeah. So I, I remember... Um, Kaylee, uh, KMB reptiles. So mm-hmm. Kaylee and Matt Burton. I'm very mm-hmm. good friends with Matt. Yeah. And he had one female last year that went off food when the snake above her laid. Wow. Yeah. And he's like, this is super weird. And I was like, oh, that's, I have no idea what's going on, but I was just yeah. curious if, if you'd ever experienced that. Well, and so part of it is like, when you have a large number of ball pythons, you're going to have a significant number off food at any given time anyway. Yeah, that's true. So, so I don't, I don't know that I'd be able to like make a clear correlation there, particularly when most of your females are on a somewhat similar timeline for how they're cycling. Um, mm-hmm. they're, you know, it's like in the summer, you're generally going to have a lot of females not eating because they're either going into laying or coming, just coming right out. And so it's just like my feeding right now is a lot different than my feeding in January. Mm-hmm. So, and then so, with the car, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No. So my, my question with that was going to be, we talked kind of a little bit about ball Python recovery yeah. um, with hog noses that have a tendency to have a more varied diet. Yeah. Do you have any intention of supplementing with extra calcium after she is laid specifically because she did have some slugs? Um, no, I mean, she's eating animals that are loaded with bones. So I feel like she's okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. on the calcium front. Um, I just, I, I just start because, but because hog noses can double clutch, Mm -hmm. um, what I'll typically do is just really start getting them eating pretty well again, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And, and again, like I'm saying this, like I've done it a bunch. I just laid my, I just had my second hog nose clutch. So I'm so not an expert on this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I didn't even recognize the, like the first time, but like, yeah, it, um, you know, I haven't had any, like, they just go right back to wanting to eat really, really fast. Um, yeah. and they're not a species that is going, you know, is going to do a maternal incubation anyway. Right. And so they're like, I don't have to deal with like washing them or whatever. They're just like eggs are out of me. I'm ready to munch. I'm really excited to interrupt really fast and announce our very first sponsor. The sponsor is selling a product and a service that I think is really necessary for the hobby and for advancing herpetological husbandry, VivTech. So are you tired of changing reptiles UVB lights every six months? Well, VivTech products and 
Erica of VivTech was a guest only a couple episodes ago, has the perfect bulb for you. The VivTech Sure Sun Series UVB and UVA bulb has a typical four-year lifespan with no UVB degradation. This means that your pet will always have the UVB and UVA they need, all while you get to save up to $400 over the life of the bulb. VivTech is providing a better life for reptiles in our homes and the world through innovative husbandry. I am so excited to be partnering with VivTech and to be able to work to promote their awesome products. I personally got to see them at Daytona Beach Reptile Show and try out the UV bulbs and try out the solar meter. Oh gosh, I can never say that word that they have. And I just think it's really awesome. So check out VivTech. Make sure to be following them on social media. Make sure you're following us on social media because we got some really cool things planned. Thanks guys. So you've talked about it like a little bit, we kind of danced around it, but like, yeah, you do have uh, four kids and a husband who all live I with do. you. And yes. originally you got into the snakes because of your son, but where did they stand with your hobby now? Are they involved at all? Yeah. So uh, the, yeah, mostly not my, mm-hmm. my oldest. So one of the things kind of that I had as an idea in all of this, when I kind of got going was I liked the idea since both of my, both of my sons are on the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. I don't have a great sense of what their, you know, long-term career prospects are going to look like. And I was like, well, you know, this is cool. I could start this little family business and, you know, have this opportunity for employment for them should they need it. Right. Uh, my, my oldest is just super not interested. He's like, that sounds like the worst job ever. I do not <laughs> want to clean uh, rodents or reptiles. And I think mm-hmm. I would rather just like flip burgers and I will be good. My, <laughs> my, um, my, the one who I got into it with the reptiles with, he loves the idea of animals. He doesn't love the caring for animals. And so I can sometimes motivate him to do some work, but it's not, not really consistent. My older daughter has decided that her way to stand out in the family is to hate reptiles. And so she just like doesn't even um, want anything to do with them. Although I've gotten her to kind of like my inland and then my, uh, my youngest daughter is really, really into um, the reptiles. She comes, she likes to come to shows with me. She likes to come out and help me with feeders. Um, she's like my little worker. And so she's the one who's into it the most. That's hilarious. How yeah. old is she? So she's eight. She just turned eight. That's and like the perfect age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's still at the point where if she's out working with me, it definitely slows me down. But I... I'm not going to discourage her interest in hanging out with mom and helping out. Like, I think she's discovered as the youngest kid in the family of four that like hanging out with me while I clean rodents is her captive mom time. And so, yeah. yeah so she's like zeroed in on, I, if I hang out with mom while she does rodents, then I get undivided mom attention. And that's pretty cool. So. And has she started to develop her own interest in specific animals? So she definitely has several that she, that she has as her snakes and she's mm-hmm. named them. And, but in terms of like developing her own, like interest in collecting her own animals, I mean, they would all love to do that. We have, we have ferrets that the kids take care of that are their animals. Yeah. Um, and she's really, really good about taking care of the ferrets. 
which is yeah. wonderful because ferrets are the worst pet and no one should ever get ferrets. Yeah. I've never heard good they're, things about a ferret. Oh, they're so smelly. They're so, yeah. they, poop, they poop all the time. <laughs> it's I, I, oh, I did. I like, I, I had researched, but I didn't just, I didn't realize the frequency of pooping that would be happening mm-hmm. in my house. And yeah. And you've it, got four kids. So. so changing topics a little bit. Yeah. You've recently got blackhead pythons. Yes. And you didn't just get blackheaded pythons, you got <laughs> exanthix, which is like, yep. holy shit. They're, what What brought you there? Yeah. So there is a, um, an, a blackheaded python breeder who vends on the show circuit that I do. And mm-hmm. he's like, an old school snake guy. He's been doing it forever. He doesn't, um, he doesn't really ship his animals. He like mm-hmm. only sells stuff locally yep. and, um, has largely, you know, cut back lots of animals forever. And so he was at the shows with these, um, with the black headed pythons. And I saw one of the azanthics and I was like, Oh my God, that is the most beautiful animal Truly. that I've ever like that I've ever laid eyes on. Mm-hmm. And so then, um, so I've been with a group of friends and, um, they're like terrible enablers. And so, um, you need those kind of friends. I know. So my friend Maria was like, do it, get one, get one, do it, do it, do it for like the whole weekend. And I texted my husband's like, and I was like, yeah, so I think I'm going to get a blackheaded Python. And so he knew that there was a morph of ball pythons called blackhead. And he Mm -hmm. thought that's what I was talking about. (laughs) I mean, so he's like, like, yeah, whatever, you know, if if you're into if that's what you want to do, go for it. And I was like, cool. My husband said, yes, I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's like a, that is an unfortunate loophole for him, but like Mm -hmm. very fortunate for you. It worked out really well for me. So yeah, yeah, there's a little price difference between a blackheaded ball python and an exanthic blackheaded python. Yeah. So I picked out a female, um, het exanthic as my first one. Mm-hmm. and um, then went back and got a male visual azanthic. And mm-hmm. then um, I picked up another pair of just really, really pretty, more of a golden color to them though, um, mm-hmm. for my other pair. So I've got so, four of them now. Were you specifically drawn to the exanthic or were you, or blackheads, or did you look at Wilma's as well? Because in my head, that's yes. the same snake. Yeah, so- I've looked at Womas as well. And they're really, I mean, they're also really cool. They, I haven't spent a huge amount of time with Womas. Mm-hmm. Um, the blackhead was the thing that just did it for me. Like done. I've got to, I've got to get these, right. but they're, um, they're just, and I mean, Womas are, are going to be very similar too, but like, they're just so unique for pythons. Mm-hmm. so much about the way that they move and their metabolisms it's like very colubrid like right um and then they're like dumb as doornails right like they're, <laughs> just, they're really dumb animals mm-hmm. um that's like funny that you say the- they're dumb animals when you work with carpet pythons and ball pythons so that really yeah, no, the the black-headed pythons like take the cake man so they're so food motivated mm-hmm. like profoundly food motivated. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't feed them off of tongs because I don't want them to associate opening the cage with like, you're getting fed and spring out at me. So oh, really? like, I literally just put the food in and, and close it. Um, and 
because they're just, they're crazy. And so I learned really, really quick when I first got my azanthic that um, you do not ever want to keep blackheaded pythons on paper towels. Because they'll eat it. Yeah, it, there was a mouse and the paper, mm-hmm. sm- paper towel smelled like mouse and it ate a fucking paper towel. How scary. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't, I only found, I didn't even know until like it, I found the regurged paper towel in yeah. the disclosure um, because it, it, it like ate it and then it regurged it really fast. So it mm-hmm. wasn't like it was stuck in its belly for a long time. Good. Um, but that was a scary one because I was just like, wow, I just got this amazing animal and it just did this stupid thing that could have died. So mm-hmm. lesson learned. Jeez. So how, how are yeah. you keeping them? So they are on Aspen mm-hmm. I, right now. So these guys are, um, they're still pretty young. I have three 2019s and one 2020. Mm-hmm. And they're in a, a V70 rack. Okay. And the heat, I, the with belly heat and the heat is turned up pretty high because mm-hmm. they do well with higher heat. So what, when you say pretty high, what, what temps are you running? Yeah. So the therm, the, the reading on the belly heat is like 93. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which I would not do for like a ball python or definitely, you know, not for a carpet python either. Yeah. Um, but they do well with a little more heat and I have mm-hmm. it right next to my bed and I can sit <laughs> in my bed and watch my like blackheads run around. And it's so fun. <laughs> so, I just like, that always makes me giggle. And especially when I speak with women who got into reptiles when they already had a partner or a husband, mm-hmm. because it's like, I don't think either of you imagined, you know, so many no. years into your relationship, you'd be laying in bed next to him, staring at your pile of snakes. <laughs> no, I mean, we've been together almost 20 years at this point. And yeah. this, like literally in my life, like I've never been able to accurately guess like where I'd be at the end of any five year period, let alone like longer period than that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. this direction was one that like we never saw coming. But, Mm -hmm. um, it's been, he's just, he's been incredibly, incredibly supportive. Um, he, so, you know, it's, it's very clearly like the reptiles are my thing and not his thing, but he will like talk through business side stuff with me all day. He takes care of food and water for all of my feeders. Mm -hmm. Um, and he does, huge amounts with the kids like he does all the kids laundry and he like has been for the past year or so like cooking dinner just about every night so that Mm -hmm. I have free time to go deal with the with the reptiles and so yeah yeah. that's so important to have like yeah that support it's 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 really nice I mean it would be great if you know he was into it too but you know that's just not how how things always work out but he's been incredibly Mm -hmm. supportive he comes to shows with me sometimes Mm-hmm. Um, and he'll help for the local ones. So yeah, it's been, yeah. And I'm going to like pause for a second and just give a quick plug to someone else's podcast. Cause you're making me think of it. Um, but Shannon Pierleoni was on my podcast, um, a few months ago and she and her husband, Anthony Pierleoni have a podcast t- called totally devoted and Anthony's Aww. a reptile guy and Shannon is not. And they talk about their relationship in terms of like compromising, like taking care of the animals and taking care of the kids. And I just love it because 
as someone who understands that that's going to be something that in the future I'll have to discuss with a partner. It's like a really, I just think a lot, everyone should listen to it. And Shannon and Anthony are awesome. So just recommend checking them out. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So with the blackheads and obviously the carpets too, it seems like you're moving more towards, and then also with the green trees, you're moving more towards Australian Indo species. Yeah. Do you have any other species like with your eye on them yet? Yeah. So I have one white lip. Um, oh, of course. Everyone's got to have a white lip at some point. I know. They're like dicks though. I don't know that. Do you have a Southern like... or a Northern? So I have a Northern. Okay. Um, and it's still a baby. So mm-hmm. this one, like I'm actually, cause it, she's, she's really young. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to periodically handle her and that kind of thing. So I'm hoping that if we build that habit over time, right. that it might help like keep her relatively calm for a white lip. Um, we'll see if that actually pans out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I, yeah, so, so I have the white lip and then I had, um, uh, I had a pair of Papuan pythons for a while. Um, and those were like dream animals and, um, I would love to get into them again, but it's, it's going to be a while because that whole experience was pretty traumatic. So without getting into too many details, that experience, um, yeah. Was it just a, a bad breeder, a bad situation in general? Or? No. So they were both wild cots. Um, okay. Papuans are really, really hard to breed in captivity. And mm-hmm. there's basically like really just, I, you know, there's a couple of zoos that have done it on like isolated occasions. Mm-hmm. And in the hobby in the US, there's really, I think just one guy who's done it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's only managed to produce a clutch twice. So they're, they're not quite Boland's level of difficulty to breed in captivity, but they're pretty close to that. Right. Um, and so, and they're also snake eating snakes and they can, you know, tend to murder each other when they're paired. And it's just, yeah. it's, it's a difficult species with all of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, so they were both wild caught. One of them was, so I got them right around the same time from two different sources. One of them was a really good source and one of them was not. Okay. And um, the one that was, and it was actually the one from the really good source that got sick. And so I don't know if that one was just hiding something and then Mm. became ill or if the other one was asymptomatic and shared because they were in quarantine together. Right. Um, but because, because they were in quarantine together and they had been transported to and from the vet together, um, for exams, we, uh, we really felt like that to protect the safety of the rest of the collection, we had to put them both down Yeah. and, um, we didn't test the female to see if she had, if she was carrying anything, it wouldn't surprise me if she was the source though. Yeah. So when you say that you had brought them to the vet, was that standard protocol for you with wild caught or was just because they both had symptoms? Yeah. So for these ones, um, I actually had done, so I had done fecal testing through, um, gosh, what's the name of the company that does all the fish head. head. Yeah, I did. I did fecal testing through fish head, Mm -hmm. um, for both of them found out that they both had a pretty significant parasite load and, um, I had taken them to the vet for the purpose of figuring out parasite treatment. Mm -hmm. And then um, I had noticed that the male was starting, who was the one who tested um, 
positive for stuff. He um, was starting to get kind of drooly and like he was starting to be at the beginning of getting an RI. So I was like, when I took them for that, I was like, oh, could you also check him out and see if, you know, right. there's anything going on? And she was like, yeah, he has an RI. And so because they had a parasite load and, you know, we were having these symptoms of illness, we were like, okay, at this point, we need to do some comprehensive testing. Right. And so that's when we ran, that's when we ran a panel. Yeah. That's oh, man. That yeah. those are the kind of things that are just, they suck. Yeah. And, you know, I think that a lot of people like probably would have never known like what, you know, what was going on because Mm -hmm. like, it's not really standard practice necessarily to Mm -hmm. be that, you know, proactive on going to vets. Right. And, um, and so I think a lot of people in that situation would have just, you know, had an animal die and probably not have ever known. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's like. It's nice that you have a vet that you trust so much too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's been, I've been really, really fortunate about that. Um, I have, I have a vet who like, she belongs to the reptile vet association. She's Mm -hmm. on a listserv of other reptile vets. And so like when something stumps her, she goes to her listserv and like talks it through with other vets. And Mm -hmm. um, she's been really, really good. That was a, that was a good thing to find. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So besides the Apodora, do you have yes. any other like goal species or dream species that you really want to in- introduce yeah. to your collection? So I have one more species that I don't think I've talked about yet. Mm-hmm. And that's my, that's my Madagascar giant hog noses. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I what is it about great- those? They're just, I don't know. They're like, they're big. They're like, they're, so they're, they're rear fang venomous. They're mm-hmm. big. They are really different than mm-hmm. anything that's exactly else. That's what I was going to say. I, I was I'm like, really drawn to different stuff. That's what I was going to say is when you say the species you're interested in, I'm like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Oh, Madagascar giant cognoses. That one seems kind of out of left field. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, you know, I keep other hognoses, but obviously mm-hmm. I have no relationship between them. Um, but yeah, they're, they're weird, man. They like, they've taken some time to, to get eat because they were also wild caught. They're ones mm-hmm. that are completely segregated. Um, I ended up talking with, um, Riley and, um, Owen McIntyre mm-hmm. about, cause they both keep them and about mm-hmm. what to do with them. And, um, I, I got them and they weren't eating and they weren't eating and they weren't eating. And I started cohabbing them and they eat like crazy. They're out, they're interested. They're like doing things. It's so interesting. And so both Riley and Owen cohab and they were like, and it, it like, it was weird. Like, cause I, you know, I've been so ingrained in coming up in the hobby that like you never cohab snakes. <laughs> yeah. And so um, it was like a weird thing to, to go and do, but for this particular species, it just it like, it seems to work really well for them. So when you're getting in wild caught species, specifically like the hog nose or, or other, yeah. just the IJs, are you immediately trying to get them on rodents or are you offering other prey items to get them eating? I, so I will do pretty much whatever I can. Okay. Um, I breed rodents. I keep quail um, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and I have a bunch of like 
different reptilink things and I don't mm -hmm. feed them as reptilinks, but I like to use them for like smearing the scent over other things. Ah, um, lovely. <laughs> yeah. So it's gross, but like it can be really effective in like, you know, smearing frog guts all over this mouse. And so now we're interested in taking the mouse. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's awesome. So, yeah. you know, you said you got your first snake in, in 2018, right? Yeah. Early 2019, early 2019. Oh my yep. God. You're, you're on the I same know. timeline as me. I know. Where do you, and you've, you've had such success in the last few years. Where do you see yourself going in the next few years? Like what are your goals for yourself? And then for yeah. the what would you like to see? Yeah. So I am, um, hope I would like to continue growing this. I would like to get to the point that I am financially able to do this as a full-time job for myself. Mm -hmm. um, I'm probably about a year and a half away from that. Wow. And that's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, we were talking earlier about like, you know, the ethical dilemmas on things and it's like, for me, it's this, you know, I love working with the animals. I really, I don't want to be contributing to an overproduction problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that I, um, yeah, we'll need to keep working and figuring out how to mm -hmm. grow in a way that's still, um, ethical and not creating a problem in the hobby. Right. Right. And I think that's something we all need to work on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's easy to, it's easy when you get caught up in it to, to put human emotions in front of the well-being of the animals. I think we all mm -hmm. need to take a step back every now yep. and then and make sure that what we're doing Absolutely. is sustainable. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So as we wrap up here, um, two questions for you. What is advice yeah. that you would give yourself looking back when you first got started? And what is some advice that you would give a younger woman looking to get into the hobby? So... Um, I would, my biggest advice would be probably to tell myself to chill on, um, Facebook groups. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was like, I got into, um, a number of different groups and was even moderating a group for a while. And it just like, it killed a lot of the joy for me, like mm -hmm. talking to them, annoying, frustrating not, and it's not like, and I was annoying and dumb and frustrating too. It's like the online personas bring out the worst in all of us. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I would have like recommended to myself to spend less time talking about animals and more time hanging out with animals. Um, and then my, which is so funny because, um, one of my pieces of advice to someone who's new and getting into this mm -hmm. would be to find your people. And it's hard to do if you're not on social media and all that kind of stuff, but like, yeah. you know, meeting, knowing other people locally who mm -hmm. are into it in particular is so, so helpful. Yeah. Especially um, when you're in Texas and it seems like every third person is a reptile person. Down yeah. There. It's a, it, there's, there's a lot of us in Texas. Um, and so, you know, really I would, I would recommend finding people that you can learn from in person mm -hmm. because there are certain things like sexing a snake or, 
um, you know, learning exactly, you know, what a female looks like as she's moving through various parts of her ovulation cycle, you know, things mm -hmm. like that, that like, you really kind of have to use your senses to grasp and understand. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, and you just, you just can't pick it up in the same way by looking at pictures online. So yeah, people absolutely. in real life. Yeah, absolutely. So Corey, I yeah. thank you so much for talking with yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. It was I very, very fun. So fun. Absolutely. Um, tell us where we can find you. How can people get in touch? Are there shows you're vending soon that we absolutely. can see you at? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, online, uh, Corey Martin reptiles on both Instagram and Facebook, and you can email me at Corey at Corey Martin reptiles.com. Um, then I am vending the herps series of shows, mostly awesome. the ones, uh, around the Texas area, because I don't like to drive for hours and hours and hours and hours. But you say that <laughs> as if driving through Texas isn't driving for hours and hours and hours. I've got like a five mile <laughs> radius that I'll do. I mean, a five hour radius, not mile, five yeah. hour radius that I'll do. And that pretty much keeps me still in Texas. So yeah. awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I will link all of your stuff in the description of this podcast, including your awesome morph market with some really incredible animals. Thank you. Um, so Corey, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's with yeah, such a pleasure get to speak um and i hope we can see you at some upcoming shows soon hey guys hope you enjoyed that awesome interview with Corey. she is incredible and just so awesome um one of the best things about doing this podcast is that i get to bring to light people who deserve a little bit more attention and help uplift other people in the hobby and i'm gonna do that right now and introduce you guys to an awesome new podcast that just came out on the Herpeticulture Network with Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics and Joe Phelan of Port City Pet and uh, the From the Ground Up Reptile podcast. So they're doing a corn snake specific podcast over on the Herpeticulture Network. I'm going to give you a little preview here so you can take a listen and then head over to their stream and hear the rest. Thanks, guys. Welcome to Corn Stars, a Herpeticulture Network show with your hosts Justin Smith and Joe Phelan. This is once again another show this <laughs> part of the herpeticulture network uh very excited to announce that this is the first episode of corn stars which is going to be hosted by me justin smith of palmetto coast exotics and mr joe phelan of port city pets do you say pets or pet pet singular pet. I you know what's weird man i didn't really get i kind of was thinking of pawn stars this whole time when you said corn stars, I don't know what angle you were going for, but uh, I just thought it was kind of it was punny. <laughs> it definitely mm -hmm. is. I'm an idiot. And then I like with the intro and stuff that I made, everyone was like, oh, my God, you need to do like, you know, smooth jazz or something to sort of fit the thing. I'm like, I ain't trying to go too hard into that, that, that theme <laughs> like that. Is that our lane now? I, I hope not. I don't want it to be. It's like, it's Did you do an intro? Did I not hear an I intro? made one. Yeah, I made one today. Uh, and I went and found a like AI voice generator. You'll you'll see. I'll have to show it to you. Is it good that other people have heard what the show I'm on sounds like before I have? Yeah. I think so. I mean, it was just our group that I sent the little like video clip of me playing it on my computer earlier. So it wasn't like clear audio. It was just, you know. Oh, I legit little, missed little it. Teaser, I had a so super busy day. So yeah, I feel you. 
so yeah, this is episode one. Uh, this is not going to be a weekly show. Uh, we're planning maybe one, two episodes a month. So it's going to be me and Joe. And then I'm going to see if I can get Chris Painshab in here so we can have some people on and like, you know, talk about certain lines and morphs and stuff like that, you know, peppered throughout. Um, but given that, you know, I've recently sort of fallen back in love with corns, at least on a serious level, uh, you know, it's like, why not? There's plenty of stuff to talk about. I don't think there's really a corn snake show around anymore. I know Donovan Winterberg had his, you know, some years ago and got the gears turning. And I was like, you know, we could do something, something simple, something I mean, like Even said, then, monthly. we're talking about four episodes or so, maybe four oh, really? episodes that I've listened to over and over again. But uh, yeah, so there's, there's no legitimate Corn Snake show that was long, long lasting, although that was a great show while it was on. Um, and I feel like I need to mention the fact, kind of bookend. Um, obviously, you guys know me from From the Ground Up, uh, a podcast that I used to have. And it's something in which I decided to kind of close the chapter on and obviously give the feed to Dominique. So we're going to post this on Dominique's feed as well as mine. If you guys aren't following her, it's the modern Medusa podcast. So get, go check out her stuff. Um, she does kind of a female focused podcast and she does it on, you know, what the feed was for from the ground up. Cause I didn't want to just stop that show and not give anyone content as well as not kind of pass the yeah. torch to yeah. someone to do something different. So, I felt that my podcast was running out of pretty much like differentiation with all the other podcasts that were coming out and so many podcasts. And it's like just too redundant. And I felt like Dom was taking a, the podcast in a very different direction, yeah. which I thought was really interesting. And then if you guys don't know, like between all the THP guys and me and Dom, I mean, we're all just really in a big circle of friends. So it's not anything weird like that I'm over here or anything. It's just all of our friends like to make podcasts and do content and stuff like that. So um, I would love it if first uh, the people who are on my old feed come and subscribe to the Herpeticulture podcast feed as well as uh, go the other way and check out the Modern Medusa podcast. So we can all help each other get more snake content out there. And uh, if you guys like listening to them, I mean, you guys are the ones who – you know, fuel us to keep on doing it. So. Yeah. It's uh, so like Burke and, and the NPR guys, like Burke has it set up to where each individual show has its own RSS feed. And so I'm, I'm curious to talk to him about that. But my biggest concern is that he's going to show me how it's done. And then I have to re-upload the other, you know, 200 plus episodes of THN shows to that new thing. And so if that's the case, I'm probably just going to keep it as is. Uh, cause I think it would be nice to sort of be able to, if people want just snakes and stogies or just THP or just this or Chondrocast, whatever, you know, they can, they can just go find those feeds itself instead of having to scroll through all the other stuff. But at the same time, I mean, people might see something, you know, we have one guest on, they see above that on another show. We had someone else on that they might be interested in. So still kind of sort of trying to navigate that. And it, there's something to be said for, for both options, I guess, but. Yeah, the question there is, are you paying monthly for each RSS feed? But right. I mean, other I'm not, stuff I'm that not we doing. don't need, to, yeah. need yeah. to get into for people. That's the reason I brought the Contracast into this RSS feed to begin with, because I was paying, you know, an, another monthly subscription just to have those episodes there, and I wasn't really adding anything to it. So I was like, why am I paying for this to just sit there when it could just sit there on the other feed? 
Yeah. So um, if you want us to break up the feeds, um, onlyfans.com slash cornstars. Nudity <laughs> is back. So go hit us up. Literally. Promise this is this is not in like adult show or anything like no. that. It's just it will probably be a lot more of the opposite, to be honest, because it will be a real so. deep dive on how to keep these animals, you know, why we love them, different things in which I'm hoping that we can make kind of like an audio handbook mm -hmm. of corn snakes. And whether that be history, whether that be keeping, breeding, um, mutations, and maybe even like pricing your corn snakes, different things like that that make it into the nitty gritty. I think there's, uh, there's enough information out there about the history of the mutations Mm -hmm. But there's not an there's no one aggregating it all and putting it into an audio format so that right. people don't have to go open a book. I know our classic thing, the reptile hobby is like, go get a book, go read a book. But not everyone's willing to do that. And I understand because listening to something on audio, if I have the chance to get an audio book over a physical book, I typically do that. I mean, I think that's why I do podcasts is because that's actually what works for me. Right. Listening to audio is how I actually learn best. Um, books, I kind of read the same sentence over and over again, like a doof. So yeah, as uh, you're falling asleep just before you <laughs> drop it on your face. Yeah. So it's like, I do read books, but then again, it honestly, it's a lot easier to digest in podcasts. And I understand mm -hmm. that. So I'd like to, to kind of have a place where someone can really get the nitty gritty. And then you, you and Chris can kind of talk to the other personalities mm -hmm. in the, in the corn snake world. We just, we have so many friends that are, that are in them, you know, um, uh, me and Chris talk daily. He's in our little group. I consider Chris, you know, one of my probably best friends in the hobby. Um, and just in life in general, cause he's such a good guy. Uh, but he's, he's doing so much cool stuff. He knows plenty of other people in corns that are doing really cool stuff. So I'm just sort of, well, I am playing catch up in corns. Like there, I've been out of the loop a really long time. Like for the last couple of years, I've kept some, but they were, they were stuff that I collected from my area and raised up, you know, as younger snakes. Um, so as far as morphs and stuff go, like I, I'm so out of the loop and it's changed so much since I, I was actually keeping up with it last, which was, I don't know how many years ago. Um, so this will be good for me because I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm going to be learning as I go kind of thing in terms of what's what, how stuff works, this, that, you know, this, that, and the other. And, um, yeah, and I guess that. I should give kind of my history of, of corn snakes and how I got into it. So I first started keeping corn snakes in kindergarten, actually, is when I got my first corn snake, brought my first corn snake into show and tell. I was lucky enough to have my parents who were cool with the snakes. My dad in particular kept snakes. So having a corn snake was a great first pet for me as far as that goes and bring them into school and stuff like that, probably freaking out kids. I don't really remember, <laughs> but um, had in a little critter keeper and all that good stuff. And throughout the years I had plenty of them. Uh, by the time I was in middle school, I got this particular corn snake named Tony and he's one that I had the longest. He actually just passed away last year, bringing him mm. to about uh, 17 years old, Wow! which Honestly, is a mediocre lifespan. I mean, it's more than most of them in captivity, but I've heard of ones that go 30 years. So uh, I always think it's, you know, what could I have done to extend that life even further? And I know that I was probably not the most attentive in the high school years when you're out doing other things and the college years as well. So 
there's a lot of things that once I got back down into reptiles, once I got out of college and started keeping again privately by myself in my own home, I was much more attentive, really got into the different husbandry, the different mutations of corn snakes. Uh, the first one I bred, I believe, was in 2012. So I'm coming up on uh, nine years of breeding corn snakes, and I've pretty much been breeding corn snakes every year, except this one. I actually took a year off, but every year um, since then, the bulk of my production was probably uh, the 2020 season in which I produced uh, about 250 corn snakes. So, Damn. so, I mean, that's small for a lot of, a lot of people out there, but for me, for one human, it was a pretty overwhelming, but I can at least say that I've been doing it long enough to know the basics of what I'm talking about, or at least have resources in which to kind of uh, gain all that knowledge if I don't have it myself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny you, you mentioned, you know, your dad sort of being into it too, because that's, that's more or less, you know, a similar situation with mine is I was breeding corns with my dad back in 2000 to 2004, 2003. Uh, so that was when I was reading, you know, Kathy loves corn steak manual cover to cover constantly. And it's funny flipping through that now and just seeing just how much things have just, it's almost exponential at how many new mutations and, and combinations there are now. It's unbelievable, but corns have always had sort of a, you know, since, since my young or older childhood, I guess, you know, being 10 to 13 ish, uh, Corns have always had a, a special place for me, and there's sort of a nostalgia factor with them now, and it's just, they're they're just fun snakes. Yeah, and I think that even if people are listening to this and they're kind of the rare snake guys, the big python guys, you know, even if you're coming from it from that angle, if, if you have kids, even if you don't have kids, I mean, it can be such a low-maintenance, fun thing to do, and then it can get you know, your kids into reptiles, it can get them to just kind of be more attentive about different things. I think it's a sense of, uh, I guess, responsibility that you can build with a, with a kid in which there's, a, there's very little that you can severely mess up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but just enough where like, they can show some responsibility and see something through all the way from, you know, brumation is kind of a weird concept. Mm -hmm. And bring them up from rumination, the feeding, the shedding, just paying attention to all those factors. And and ultimately, if you do it right, getting eggs and then hatching babies and then yeah. getting the baby started. It's a whole process in which isn't really difficult. But then again, uh, it would be a whole lot of fun to do it with a kid. Yeah, I need to find it. I have a stack of old pictures and one of them is me. We So my dad at one point in our garage, we had a separate garage at the time, a pretty decent sized one. Um, he had built a little room in the corner and that was like the snake room. And that's where he ran like some heaters and stuff. And, and there's a picture of me hovered over a tank, just watching a feet. Like I was literally watching a female pop out eggs and it was, I, I, I don't even know how long I sat there, but it was just the, the coolest thing at the time. And then seeing them hatching and like the smell of the vermiculite and the, I, it's, I don't know. Like I said, it just, it brings back a lot to, for me. And I mean, I completely agree on the, on the pet aspect. Uh, it's, funny because matt most i think teaches his daughter genetics because they they both breed like he breeds black rats with her and some corn snakes and stuff to to show her genetics and teach her these things which i think is awesome because that's like i mean you don't get any better you know hands-on experience than than that yeah i think you can kind of say and that's why it's it's tough you know we see it 
in Facebook groups all the time, right? People know a lot of things in books. People know a lot of things from videos, uh, but doing it hands-on or seeing it kind of play out right in front of you, whether it be the genetics, whether it be, you know, raising a baby from a hassling to an adult, um, and then doing that on a larger scale, you learn even more. You learn the variation of each animal and how different animals can act different ways. Different animals are triggered by certain things in different ways, whether it be feeding, whether it be defensive nature. Um, mm -hmm. they're so, they're so similar in husbandry, but so different in personality. And I see that very much in particular with corns. And I think a lot of that has to do with the ranges you find them in, how the different mutations play. I think we may downplay the, I don't know if it could, if we could say it's the lineage of the animals that are passing down the behaviors, or maybe it's where that animal was collected. Mm -hmm. So if you have a diffused corn, they could be from the Florida Keys and they can be a little bit more round in shape and they can be a little bit more flighty, at least in my experience. And then also they seemingly want to feed on lizards as babies. They're a little bit harder to get, to get feeding. And that's because of where they're from, what their body shape is like, you know, kind of what they're useful or used to in their environment, even though we've been breeding them for breeding them for decades yeah. and decades. Um, yeah, it really, uh, you still don't get that out of the animal. You don't get that, those behaviors out of the animal, whether that's genes or, uh, just where they're from. Well, I guess it would be genes, anything expressed. Yeah, be almost, I won't say ancestral because I think that's a bit of a stretch, but you know, definitely that keeps that football gets, keeps getting passed, you know, down, down the line. Yeah. And then you're seeing a lot of, you're seeing a lot of the mutations uh, started off actually in South Carolina, North Carolina, where you have some anneries and devil's garden in Florida that you can find in the wild right now. So there's, these animals come from, you know, range from New Jersey to the Florida Keys, and they're different colorations. Mm -hmm. They're different body shapes, which have evolved over time by whether the prey availability or what the area is like. Uh, so there's really variation within the variation uh, just because of the natural variance of the species. So that's why I find it really exciting to talk about. I find it really exciting to work with different animals and really exciting to have a group of individuals in which are different. Um, so I don't know if you've had like Okatees tend to be a little bit more bitey. Yeah. Um, I mean, mine so, are, especially the, the, the babies I just recently hatched. Cause going back to the locality thing, like that's my original interest in corns, like morphs are awesome too, but my main focus is, uh, so I'm in, I'll, I'll back up a little bit, but I'm in like prime world-class corn territory i'm in beaufort south carolina which is maybe 15 20 minutes from jasper county and where the old okatee hunt club used to be way back in the day um and jasper county is famous for just those highlighter orange uh corns you know some of the best in the in the world in my opinion i'm, I'm biased because i'm a south carolinian born and bred and uh i take pride in our corns that we have here so my thing is we have so many barrier islands down here where I live. And so you'll get different populations of corns and there'll be little differences. And then I have some that even come from, you know, within 200 yards of each other that look completely different. Uh, and so the, I hatched out a clutch this year and it was from ladies Island, which is the Island I live on. Um, I'm literally like right on the water, like around the corner from my house over the street, there's the marsh. Um, so it's a very, about as coastal as a, as a town can get. 
but like I said, tons of islands, big and small, that all sort of chain their way up the coast and stuff. And I'm in the very bottom corner, almost almost at the Georgia border. So we have some of the best looking corns, in my opinion. And I uh, I can attest that the Okatees definitely seem to be pretty pretty spicy. At least the uh, the F ones that I have that I just hatched are, are pretty pretty pugnacious. <laughs> yeah, that also helps too, being uh, a little bit closer to to nature as far as generations. Mm-hmm. So, I think we we may take it for granted your a male that's been bred since the seventies. Yeah, you know, <laughs> obviously, I mean, domestication's a stretch, but then again, uh, we kind of self-select for. And I know back in the day, they were even uh, meticulously selecting for temperament you know, selectively or selectively breeding for size for these different things that now I feel like we're just kind of breeding for coloration. And then therefore, you know, it doesn't matter how it acts, what it's like. Uh, but back in the day, they were really paying attention to every single factor. Mm-hmm. So you really have some things like amels and anneries that can really come out of the egg, completely chill, eating, you know, pinkies from day one that are really amazing animals. Um, and then also you can probably get random ones from your clutch. That would be nice. Uh, that would be that one super laid back animal in which, you know, if you're going back to, you know, the 1970s, you may have kept that one back. And then mm-hmm. next clutch, there's another calm one. And then you keep yep. those back. And uh, yeah, I mean, they've been selective bred every which way. And uh, they are the animal that started basically the morph craze in, in reptiles. Isn't it amazing? I mean, just with ball pythons too and corn snakes and I guess really anything that has a morph, but like a single albino is kind of the, the catalyst for just an absolute explosion of other things in the following decades. Like, it's just insane that it can start with one and then through, I guess, more or less what I would call sort of crowdsourcing, you know, it just exponential. Like I said, it just explodes into infinite combinations and colors and uh, patterns. Well, yeah, because once you start looking for these differences, they start kind of popping up, especially Mm -hmm. when you have a native species here, you have so many people across the country, you know, and back in the day, it was more, you know, herp clubs and stuff like that, in which it was just kind of uh, word of mouth in which uh, mm-hmm. someone may have gotten a postcard of a uh, price list from Kathy Love, or maybe, I, I forget exactly, I'll go back and we'll have a whole thing on this. Uh, but Dr. Bechtel was one of the, is the godfather of corn snakes. He's the one who got the first albino, which I believe was found in South Carolina. I believe he was in North Carolina at the time. Uh, don't quote me on this. I'll do a fully researched episode on all of this. But, you know, it really started with one person. And then you have the next generation, which be Kathy Love, who really uh, blew it up as far as, you know, she was sending out price lists in the mail. There was color photos. She made books. And then you talk about the dawn of the forum era. And mm-hmm. then you have Kathy Love still still out there. And then you have Don Soderberg. And then now, I mean, you have Travis Whistler's taking a lot of Don's stuff as well as um, Steve Roylands. And there's some people that just the torch gets passed on and on and on with every generation in which gets crazier and crazier and beyond your imagination every single generation that it happens just from one enthused person to the next. And 
it's really just one or two individuals that really fuel, you mm -hmm. know, this whole thing, which is quite incredible. Obviously there's a lot of, there's a, now there's probably, you know, 20 giant players and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But, and then you have people since the pet market is so big. I mean, you have people producing, you know, tens and thousands, you know, for the big box pet stores, because I know what we like about corn snakes is what, makes them you know the best yeah. snake at least in my opinion for anyone and uh yeah so i guess i wanted to go over a little bit of what we like about this species in particular mm -hmm. so if someone if someone just thinks that it's like a kid's corn snake a starter animal i understand where you're coming from and we have to be frank that like that makes it the best pet snake but it also makes it like the best pet snake for anyone. So I don't that's, see why that makes yeah. it just exclusively kid. But it's, it's that's that's a very big part of, of why I love them so much is just the simplicity. You know, when you deal with baby Alterna and you deal with baby Chondros and you deal with other species that require, you know, more attention to detail uh, that are considerably more headache inducing, it's really nice to just have a species that you can just, you know, you can just enjoy it. Like, not that I don't enjoy the other stuff or haven't enjoyed the other stuff, but to not have to worry, like, man, I love these Alterna, but I'm going to have to spend, you know, two hours on Saturday trying to get them all to eat. And I got to hunt down a fence lizard or something for scenting and having to worry about that kind of stuff. Like with these, it's like, it's just, they're corn snakes. You know, it's, it's the simplicity is, is a big part of the draw, I think. Yeah. And I think that definitely starts with just in general, the size of the animal. I mean, you're looking at something where most individuals are from three to five feet. And then even at that three to five feet, you're looking at like a roll of quarters in mm -hmm. width. And that's something in which benefits the keeper as far as, you know, you can keep quite a few of them. You can keep them in a three foot enclosure. You can keep them in a 30 gallon tank, 40 gallon long, whatever, whatever you would like. And also it's an animal in which, you can keep it in big enclosure. Uh, people have kept them in tubs forever. Um, and if you're keeping a few of them, I don't see why you would keep them that way, mm -hmm. especially because of the niche that we're talking about that they, that they inhabitate. So like or inhabit, and <laughs> I don't know how they inhabit. I'm making up my own. Inhabitate. So, if you put things in the enclosure, they're going to climb. These are animals that are, you know, mostly semi-arboreal pretty much in nature. As adults, they're going to definitely climb less, but they're still, you could still definitely find an adult in a tree. I think it was very commonplace for kind of the old school herpers to say, put them in tubs. As adults, none of these things climb. And I, I've seen so many pictures of in situ corn snakes in the wild in a tree. Yep. That there's just no possible. There's still a rat snake. The truth. Yes. You know, and they're there's... eating. They're robbing birds' nests mm -hmm. all the time. That's actually a big staple of of what they're of what they're eating in the wild. So I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, if you have a few of them, set them up in a cool enclosure. Mine, even you know. I have the brain in which has seen so many reptile shows probably been handled by like thousands of kids. <laughs> he's in an, in, now he's in an enclosure. He's in the exoskeleton from focus cubed where 
the front's glass, the sides are glass, the back's glass, and the top's glass. And so it's just like a frame. More yeah, exoskeleton. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think a lot of people associated that with stress of the animal. But this is an animal who likes to come out and like see what's mm -hmm. going on. He likes to see what I'm doing. It's a much more interactive experience than you would ever imagine <laughs> that yeah. with a snake, right? And I think that corn snakes have that personality to them. I think that that's pretty unique of the corn snake, although I've seen, you know, other people with pythons, you know, I've had carpet pythons that come out uh, to check out what's going on in the room when you're in the room and stuff like that. Um, so I think it kind of benefits us if you can do it that way. But also mm -hmm. if you have a hundred snakes, having one in the tub, I mean, you're feeding it, you're keeping it correctly. I, I can't scoff at that because I do that as well. friends i hope you enjoyed that teaser of the corn stars podcast over on the herpeticulture network i can't wait to listen to the rest of it justin and joe are just like phenomenal speakers on this topic and just really great to listen to so i'm going to link this in the description of the podcast go take a look at their channel take a look at all the other herpeticulture network episodes all their shows all that amazing stuff that they're putting out and give them a listen and as always i'll talk at you next week thanks guys Thanks for listening.